It's a new layout. Don't let it throw you. It'll work. It'll work. Brian is going to read. I think we have a um, page number. I think it's page 291, but yep. let me turn this on and see if we can get that up for you. Yeah, here we go. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4. I'm going to be in 1 Kings today. So if you want to turn to page 291 in the Bible in front of you, that's fine, or on your phone, or if you're old school, you have a book. That works too. Go ahead. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these women in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. <clears throat> Good job, Ryan. Thank you. Great. He escaped the awkward names. Sometimes I, seems like I always give Brian the passages with a bunch of weird names, but he did well. Thank you. Well, anyway, welcome to Grace Life. This is who we are. We're Grace Life Bible Church. We love Jesus because he first loved us. Our, our big thing here is if you're wondering, how do you guys roll and what do you do? The shortest way possible I can explain that is we experience God's grace and we love to extend it. And that order is very important because we experience it first and then we respond to his love by extending it. Some people extend it and they try to earn it to, so they can experience it, but we experience it, then extend it. And um, we're growing in our knowledge of him. We experience and extend God's grace. We grow in healthy relationships because that should be a trickle down effect of the gospel in us as we live it out. And then we impact those far and near people that we rub shoulders with. So um, a little kind of, kind of complicated, but I've been over this before. Our core, core values, our core values give rise to what I call rhythms of grace. Again, it, it's a response to who God is. So my reading and, and prayer is, is a response of gratitude, not some desperate clamoring to try to get God to smile at me and give me favor, okay? Um, so, and then we're, we're all about making disciples, and that's, that's, if you're, you have to be a disciple to make a disciple, right? And so we're all following Jesus, and that's, that's what we're doing. Anyway, end of the commercial. That's kind of what we are. We've been rolling through the Old Testament at a pretty high level, just kind of landing on major people. And so we've already done creation and Adam and Eve. We saw Noah had a covenant. Then we saw Abraham. He had a covenant. Moses had a covenant. Joshua. For judges, we focus on Gideon, sort of the, the central pivot character where things started to go bad. And now we're going to... Um, contrast David and Solomon. David has his own covenant. And here's the thing that I, I want you to understand about all those covenants. All of those Old Testament covenants point to the new covenant and they're fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus ends the old Mosaic covenant. And that was what is so hard for the Jews in the first century to figure out. Okay, that's why the book of Galatians and Romans, they're just completely losing their minds because Paul is saying, hey, your whole Mosaic thing, it's a, it's a done deal. And their whole life is built on it. We'll get to that later, like in six months. Anyway, so that's, um, that's kind of where we are, what we're, what we're rolling through. So a, a little 
disclaimer today, if you've been with me for 40 or 50 minutes, you know that I, I value the backgrounds and cultures of the text, right? And the reason is any page in the Bible, any story, it's, it's written by a specific author using specific words to a specific audience, and that audience has their own culture. They have their own way of the economy, their own way of marriage and family and worship and government and warfare. Everything's different. And if you start in Genesis and you roll through Revelation, you move through 12 dominant cultures and the rules change. And the Bible frequently doesn't tell you, by the way, now you're in Philistine culture, but, but things are different. Anyway, that to say that our culture also puts certain lenses on how we understand Scripture. It's just, you can't help it. Um, so I try to expose those things, and today I might, I might present uh, Solomon in a light that you, you, makes you uncomfortable, and that's okay, all right? But my conviction is I want to follow the text. And, and remember a good example of that is, is like a simple little thing about where the location of Ur is, Abraham's hometown. Yeah, because, you know, about 80% of the Bibles you buy, if you go to the map in the back, it says it's way in the south. But at least 10 times in the text, it points to a northern, very clearly, a northern designation. So that's what I'm talking about. We have these, these lenses on, and they go, oh, this is the way it is. And maybe you've thought that, you know, Solomon, you know, he's the wisest man that ever lived, and he's sort of a hero. But uh, I'm going to try to persuade you that the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings is an attempt to explain step by step by step, why this blew up. Did you know that Solomon, in chapter 11, he's called, the Lord says, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Isn't that weird? How do you, how, how can you be the wisest man and do, we'll get there. That's part of my, that's part of my thing. All right. So we have a problem today that we are not odd. We as Christians fit in with the world in ways we shouldn't fit in the world. All right. So many times you look at some research, there is no or very little statistical difference between believers and non-believers in all kinds of stuff. Here's a quote. Um, Evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in general. Uh, there's a book I, I just bought this last week and kind of zipped through a bunch of it. Uh, it's called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. And um, just some highlights here. In terms of materialism and the poor, uh, statistically, the richer we get, the less we give. That's just a fact. All right? 6% of born-again Christians tithe. Okay, that's not 100% of Christians tithing 6%. It's 6% of people giving whatever. Sexual disobedience. 33% of, of the culture lives together before marriage, 25% of Christians do that. 13% of evangelical Christians say adultery is okay. <laughs> you might want to ask that question on a date before you get married, all right? Racism. 11% of Catholics object to black neighbors. 17% of Baptists and evangelicals object to black neighbors. What is that deal? Have you guys ever heard of uh, Promise Keepers? Remember back in the day, if you're old like me, Promise Keepers, I went to Boulder a couple times, the stadium's full, and Coach, um, I almost said Paul McCartney, but Bill McCartney, <laughs> um, different McCartney, uh, he was the coach of the Colorado uh, football team, and he was a believer, and he, started, he was talking, and, and, and whenever he would come out, there was this big roar of applause and a bunch of, you know, adrenaline and excitement, 
And, and he would frequently make a plea and, and, and talk about racial reconciliation. And it just got really, really quiet. People didn't want to hear that part of the gospel. So we have, we have in physical abuse in marriage, 10.7% uh, of wives in conservative, theologically conservative homes have been abused. And so it's just, it's like, what is, what is the deal? Um, there's a lot of answers to that. But we have good theology, but if we don't practice it, what, how are we different? And, and remember, we experience it and then extend it. So it's not this, oh, go do, the, here's a list. I don't have a list for you, but you, you can go that direction. Some people do. But we, we want to be transformed on the inside first, and that flows out. And that happens best as we read God's word, we, we community, we, we bounce around, and we have loving friends going, ah, yeah, John, what's that about? And we need that in our lives, okay? So here's my question. Why do so many Christians fit in with the world? Why are they not odd in a good way, all right? So, um, and it makes me wonder what version of Christianity we have, because the version I see so often is, is one that's typified by power and control and hedonistic and consumerism, and, and, and it's just not a healthy thing. And you don't have to Google far to go, you know, abusive Christianity, and you will be busy all day reading, okay? So it's a problem out there, and we, we don't want to get stuck in what some people call perpetual Christian adolescence. And that's the focus of me, my rights. It's all about me and, and, and sort of oblivious to God's holiness, God's kingdom, God's purposes. And, and sadly, we see Solomon fall into that. So that's where we're going. Um, have you ever met somebody who just really didn't fit in? Just odd. You don't look at your neighbor like that. But anyway, I'm just saying that... <laughs> Some people, like, you're meeting them, like, you just, are you from around here? You don't, you're just, and, and some, some people who are very odd and have idiosyncrasies, I, I like them because they're just different. It's like, that's refreshing. I don't want to be that person, but I like to watch them from a distance because it's entertaining, and so it's okay. So here's a book. Uh, a friend of mine recommended it. It's called Blessed Are the Misfits, and it's just, it's just sort of his, this guy has Asperger's. A syndrome, so he's on the spectrum, and um, so he just doesn't really fit in. And so let me just read uh, a, a section that kind of explains how, how he's operating in life. Like most Aspies or people with Asperger's, I don't comprehend normal human interactions, like the unwritten rules of social cues. I also occasionally lapse into overusing quotes to illustrate the degree to which all this is foreign to me like this. Anyway, take eye contact, for instance. I hate it. Normal people associate eye contact with listening, so I'll make eye contact to be nice to normal people. But ironically, when I'm making eye contact with you, I'm not thinking about what you're saying. I'm thinking, wow, I hate eye contact. Also, people with Asperger's tend to be very blunt. I'm constantly offending people on my radio show, and I genuinely don't know why he has a radio show, uh, but he has Asperger's, and, and um, his whole thing is like, I, I don't fit in. He's like, I'm a misfit, and the book basically is saying it's okay to be as you are before God. You don't have to pretend to be emotionally expressive or this or that or some other thing. And so it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of entertaining. And I don't read a chapter without laughing out loud, all right? Anyway, uh, but he points out Jesus. He could have picked the Pharisee big shot, but he, he, picks, he picks misfits. I mean, look, look at his team. 
I mean, if you're a consultant, you're like, okay, Jesus, can, can we meet in the hallway? Because th this isn't a good start. Do, do you understand what you're doing here? You want to be a big deal in 2,000 years? You want to have a big impact? This isn't a good start. And so um, Jesus in his kingdom, he celebrates the lost, the broken, and he could have picked people who were nice looking and had all the answers, but that's, that's not how he rolls. Here's a quote, another quote from this book. Jesus is exactly what I hope God would be, a blunt-speaking, underdog-loving, field-leveling, jaw-droppingly brilliant, authority-challenging, short-storytelling, self-sacrificing, bring-the-children-to-me healer. And if there's a God, this is what God is like. This is incredibly good news. So that's just the, the gist of his book. And so I'm talking about misfits. And so basically, when we contrast David and Solomon, we're going to have this conclusion, blessed are the misfits. Now, David and Solomon, one of them's a misfit, one of them is a fit in. He's a fitter, okay? So we're going to kind of roll through this and, and see um, how it goes. David, you know, he's overlooked. Hey, go get your kid. God said one of your kids is going to be king, so go get him. Here they are. Uh, no, 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 no. Is that all of them? Well, the, the kid out in the field, he's, you know, but go get him. And God is like, bring him. This is, this is who he's going to be. Um, God, remember Deuteronomy 17, God wanted to pick their king. Because you kind of you wonder if the, the, people, the people don't want what God wants. The people want power, glory, gold. And uh, God is like, no, I'm picking the king. Why is he picking the king? Because the people want glory, gold, and, and all that. So he is like, I'm going to pick your king. And here is a very disappointing truth I have to share with you. God does not think like we do. I'm sorry to let you know that. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. For as the higher the heavens, higher than earth, your ways, my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So, so he doesn't think like us. So what we think is like, that's good. Let's do that. That's a good idea. It turns out to be a bad idea. Solomon had a great idea in the world's thinking about how to protect his kingdom. We'll get to that. It turned out to be the worst idea ever, okay? So, let's go ahead and vote for a king, all right? Um, you want Saul, David, Solomon? So, if, if um, would you vote for Saul? He looks good, and he's so nice. He, he likes everybody, and he likes everybody to like him. He, he really is concerned about whether or not you like him. He's very sensitive. He might be a good, good king, right? Would you take David? Well, David, by the way, Saul did not, God did not choose Saul. He said, no, okay? David, do you want him? He is a misfit. He's a little kid. He has bed head. He probably hasn't bathed in days. He smells like sheep. He's running around the woods. Who knows what he's doing? I mean, really? We can do better. We got Solomon. Solomon, look at that. An inside palace, homegrown guy, connections, power, social this, money. Oh, this, this is what the king looks like. I mean, sure, he kills his brother and stuff, but hey, that's, that's politics, right? Yeah, it's, it's awkward, isn't it? So Samuel, long before these guys showed, well, right when Saul showed up, he gives a warning about the kings because Israel is like, we want a king, we want the king we want, which I've made the case, it's the wrong guy at the wrong time for the wrong reason, it's a disaster. Samuel says, if you choose your own big deal king, your fit in king, 
He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He'll appoint for himself commanders for thousands. He'll take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take your fields and vineyards, olive orchards, give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards, give it to his officers. Can you see the bureaucracy? It's growing. He'll take your male servants, female servants, the best of your young men, put them to work for his work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. And after this speech, like, no, we want a king. Okay. God's like, fine. Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They rejected me. This is where giving them what they want is their discipline. That's another frightening thought that I can, I can actually be so desperately blind to the goodness of God that I, I want this. And God is like, yeah, that's, you know, time 1,712 that I'm saying no, but okay. There you, anyway, so that's interesting. So we want to make sure we're talking about, so I have um, tw- uh, 11, 11 killer questions about Solomon, one per chapter. So we're kind of going to fly over. 11 chapters here. The first killer question is, how does Solomon become king? Uh, in order to answer this, we have to get a bath, a bath story, backstory of Bathsheba, um, because Bathsheba is, is, is this woman who's married to a Hittite, Uriah, and one day, Nathan, uh, Nathan comes up later, um, David is on his roof, and it says during the times when normally kings go out to battle, he's just kind of hanging out on the roof and, and he sees across the, the valley uh, a naked woman. I've been to that valley. I've looked across and you can, you can see the color of a lawn chair across the valley, the, the Kindred Valley. Um, anyway, and, and then he's attracted to her. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. There's a problem. And so he kills. He arranges for her husband, Uriah, the soldier, send him to the front. And when he's at the front, have all the other guys run away and then he'll die. And that happens. And uh, it's just another Thursday for a king, right? Um, so that's the backstory there. Um, so the, the child that Bathsheba and David had there, he died. But later on, Solomon is born from Bathsheba. And um, zooming forward about 20 or 40 years, Adonijah is, is another son of David with another woman whose name is Haggith. If you're expecting a daughter, there's an option for you, Haggith. Um, anyway, Adonijah's mom, Haggith, and dad, David, he's in line to become king, and he's making a move to be the king, but Bathsheba is freaking out, thinking, I want my son to be king. In fact, David, you promised me my son would be king. When, when would David have made that promise? Interesting. So Bathsheba says, in the midst of this political tension... Did you not, my lord, the king, swear to me, your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me? Why then is Adonijah king? Because Adonijah was kind of making a big deal and trumpets and all this. And and then she says, my lord, you swore to your servant, me, by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, and you don't know it. So... She is in a pinch here. It's uh, it's power struggle. So we have a couple teams. We have Adonijah, son of Haggith. Uh, he's got Joab supporting him, Abathar the priest supporting him. But Solomon, Bathsheba's son, we, he's got Nathan, Benaiah, a warrior. He kills a lot of people. It's rated R. And then um, David's mighty men. And so we have the this power tension. And Bathsheba is afraid for her life because in this culture, this is how it works. If your son doesn't become king, he's a threat to the king, so they kill you. That's the way it works. Listen to Bathsheba's words here in 1 Kings one twenty one. It will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his father, when you, Solomon, when you die, 
I and my son, Solomon, will be counted as offenders and be killed. She is afraid for her life, okay? So she manipulates. Well, we're answering the question, how does Solomon become king? And the weird thing in chapter 1 is there's not a single occurrence of God naming the king. It's fear and manipulation. David doesn't talk to God. Nathan doesn't talk to God. Zadok, the priest, doesn't. They don't, no one's talking about God's choice of king. David even says, it's my throne. I appoint Solomon. That, that's a problem. So, I have a disturbing question. I'm not sure if you're ready for this. It's just a question. You don't have to freak out and leave. David had promised Bathsheba, your son will be king. Could that, I'll just say, there are some scholars and commentators that put that conversation way back right after she was spotted on the roof. In other words, she could have been seducing the king who's running around naked on the roof in the middle of the day saying, if you sleep, I'll sleep with you if my son gets to be king. She could have co-conspired. She is involved in the execution of numerous people. She is very, very controlling, manipulative. And if so, she is perhaps the most conniving and cruel woman around. But we don't typically look at her like that. Certainly when I get to heaven, I'm not going to ask her, right? It's a little awkward. I'll just let it roll. Anyway, so it's just a question. Is there any intentionality about that? I don't know. It's just a question. So... What happens to team Adonijah? Well, Joab is executed and Abathar is expelled because, you know, you got to control those people that talk to God, right? So get him out of here. I want to control what I want to control, all right? So that is interesting. Um, so in chapter 1, he becomes king by manipulation, execution, and expelling the priest. Um, and then we go to question number two. Did Solomon follow his father's charge to follow God's statutes? Because in 1 Kings 2, David is dying. He says, Solomon, my son, listen to me. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways. Keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses. Uh, if you're careful to do this, then you'll live long. So this is his charge. But what does Solomon do? And then David, right after he says, he says that, follow the Lord, the very next verse, he says, kill Joab. And then kill Shammai. And he says specifically... Behold, with you is Shammai, the, the son of so-and-so. Um, he cursed me with a violent curse one day. I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, don't let him go unpunished. You will know what to you to do, how to bring his gray hair down to Sheol. This is David's last, last words. I promised I wouldn't kill him, so go kill him. Is this how God operates? Is this what you learn when you read the law of God? No, this revenge so David dies, Solomon becomes king. Now the question is, will Solomon become a good king? He, he comes to the throne by manipulation, political intrigue, through the, the hand of Bathsheba. And then, um, there's, when David was old and cold, he couldn't stay warm, uh, this, this woman, Abishag, another name for you expecting mothers, Abishag. Twins, Haggith and Abishag. Anyway, um, Adonijah is saying, hey, I want Abishag for a wife. Well, Abishag is sort of close to King David, and it's basically like saying, I want to get a little part of the throne. I want to claim on the right to inherit. And so Solomon hears this and says, he's dead. 
Solomon kills him because he was interested in this Abishag woman who had connections with David. So, um, is Solomon a good king? No, he continues the control of Bathsheba and the murder of David. This is how he's rolling, all right? Um, Bathsheba is like really the first helicopter parent. It's kind of a, kind of a violent ending if she disagrees with you. All right, uh, what happens to Team Solomon? So Zadok, he picks his own priest, and then Benaiah, who killed Joab, he becomes commander of the army. So that's, that's what happens where, where he's getting the team secured. It's all political manipulation. Um, chapter 2, yeah, he kills Adonijah, Joab, Shammai, expels Abathar, and uh, Solomon fits in. So let's go to chapter 3. Who is Solomon's wife? Who is he worshiping, and what is he tolerating? This is, a tr this is perhaps one of the more troubling chapters. Um, it starts off, Solomon made marriage alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Okay, right there, that, that Egypt is usually always a super bad idea in the Old Testament. I mean, if you're in the Old Testament and someone says, hey, Egypt, like, no, bad idea, okay? It's always a threat to Israel, and now it, it, he's at the family dinner at Thanksgiving. He's, he's in the family. That, that's wrong, all right? So then it goes on in verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Okay, let's unpack this. Except he offered sacrifices. By chapter 11, you ready for this? We see that he not only worships false gods, he built altars to false gods in Jerusalem, to Molech and Shamash. He's not worshiping God. He doesn't even know the law by the time chapter 11 comes. Remember, the, the 11 chapters, it's this detailed story of how did we get there to the plane crash, and this is how you go there, okay? But it says here, Solomon loved the Lord. Yeah, this whole, this whole thing I'm showing you, Solomon is praised for doing things that the king shouldn't be doing. It's the author's way of going, oh, he's so wise, so powerful, isn't that great? And then you see stuff like this, and you're like, okay, kind of tongue-in-cheek, sort of a wink-wink. You know what I mean? If you're actively making sacrifices on the high places of false gods, how can you say that you love the Lord? You don't even know him. High places 38 times occurs outside of this, and they're all negative. Um, so how did we get here? here? Here's what the Deuteronomy says about intermarriage with all these women, all right? When the Lord your God brings you to the land, you're entering to take possession of it. When the Lord your God gives them over to you to defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. Make no covenant, show no mercy. And here we go. Do not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to the sons, taking the daughters for your sons. Because it goes on and says, um, they will turn your heart from following me. Okay, that's kind of heavy, but verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3, maybe all is not lost because it says, Solomon walked in the statutes of his father David. Okay. What does that mean? What exactly are the statutes of David? Go find them. That's a non, it's a non thing. I mean, he can't say he walked in the statutes of God. He, the closest you can say is Solomon walked in the statutes of, what are the statutes of father David? Kill him because he offended me and kill him because I said I wouldn't kill him. That's the statutes of David. Interesting, isn't it? Wow. So the future success of the kingdom depends on the obedience of the kings. And this is making a case that this is why everything fell apart. All right. So David charged 
Solomon to walk in God's ways, keep God's statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies, the, the law. Solomon walked in the statutes of David. He's never said to walk in the statutes of God. I question if he even knew them because Deuteronomy said the king, Deuteronomy 17, the king shall have and write a copy of the law and obey it. Solomon doesn't do that. He doesn't know it. You can't obey what you don't know, right? And he's sacrificing at the high places. Troubling, 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 troubling. Um, so let's go back to that question. If, if Solomon's one of the wisest people that ever lived, and he was, how can he just screw up so bad? Doesn't that give you pause? You're like, Phew. I mean, if he can't, he's the wisest man ever, and he, forget it, I don't have a shot at this. You do. Why does he fail? Because the ability to distinguish from right and wrong is no guarantee you will practice it. The success in the Christian life is not in knowing right and wrong. It's in practicing, doing things, right? I mean, that, that's really what sets us apart. In our culture, so many people have just settled for, I know right and wrong, and wrong, 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 bad, 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 bad. And that's where they, that's where they end. And you can find that on YouTube too. You know what I mean? And so instead of, of, of zipping the, the bitterness and the vindictiveness and, and walking with Jesus and opening up our, our hearts, which are full of pain, it's full of disappointment. And instead of lashing out of just dying with Jesus and that pain and understanding Jesus was not understood. He was forsaken by his own family. And then he has, had resurrected purpose. And uh, that sounds like another sermon coming up. But anyway... Um, and then by chapter 11, verse 6, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. So these 11 chapters, how do we crash and burn the entire thing? This is how you do it. And then in the same chapter, chapter 3, uh, this is also where he asks for wisdom. And he is so kind. He helps these two prostitutes because the whole baby thing. Oh, it's my baby. It's not your baby. And oh, look how wise he is because he knows the true mother will, will show up when he's like, cut the baby in half. And then the true mother's like, oh, no, no, oh, that's the true mother and we're like so wise okay let's just hit pause and ask why is the king tolerating prostitution in israel why is he aiding prostitutes they shouldn't even exist so again he's praised for doing something but you stand back and you're like yeah that's the whole thing is wrong okay interesting so he's praised for loving the lord even though he has international connections with Egypt, which he's not supposed to have, he's pro tolerating prostitution and offering worship on the high places to false gods. Off to a good start? Yeah, it, gets, it just keeps going, all right? Chapter 4, is he blessing people with his power or using them? And here 1 Samuel said, um, you know, he will take your sons and take your daughters. And Deuteronomy said, the king must not acquire a bunch of horses or make himself return to Egypt and all this stuff. Um, and it just details. He had 40,000 stalls for horses, 12,000 horsemen, um, 1,400 chariots. So it, it's just this bureaucracy that Samuel and Moses warned about. And, uh, but the, the best part of, of chapter 4, um, Solomon is praised for speaking numerous things about trees and beasts and birds and reptiles and fish. He's so wise. But what's not in that list? trees and beasts and birds and reptiles and fish. He doesn't speak about God. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. He is not a misfit. He fits in, all right? Now we're going to go to chapters 5, 6, and 7 and just look at the temple quickly. How does he build the temple? Samuel warned, he will appoint, he'll take your sons, make them workers. First Kings 
5. Solomon drafted forced labor out of all of Israel, 30,000 men, set them to 10,000 in a shift. I love this next part. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. <laughs> I mean, it's like, okay. It seems to be pointless, but there it is. Anyway, he had 70,000 burden bearers, 80,000 stone cutters, 3,300 chief officers. So he conscripted 30,000 of his own Israelites, does not pay them, forces them to work, doesn't pay them. He taxes Israel so much by the time he's dead in chapter 12, their whole cry is, your father who's killing us with taxes, change it. So, so he's, he's not ruling well, which is exactly what Samuel said would happen, right? So then you go on to chapter 6 and 7, and you learn that um, he spent seven years building the temple and 13 years building his own house. Those verses are right next to each other. I think that's on purpose. Proportionality, seven years temple, 13 years his own house, and gold is everywhere. And, and you know, Deuteronomy 17, not have excessive gold. Um, there's 10 occurrences of gold in, in, in these chapters about the temple. I mean, it's, it's crazy. There's gold everywhere. Um, the sanctuary with gold and uh, overlay the whole house with gold. Uh, the whole altar was with gold and lampstands and cherubim and doors and floors and altar. It's just, it's just, it's excessive, okay? Um, so he fits in with the culture. Chapter 8, does he even know God's law? That's a question because uh, he does complete the temple and he dedicates. Let's praise Solomon for dedicating the temple. Isn't that a great thing? So yeah, in chapter 6, verse 38, it's completed. It says very specifically in the eighth month, eighth month. The year's not named, doesn't matter. So the temple's completed in the eighth month, but then in chapter 832, it says it was dedicated. The ceremony of dedication was in the seventh month. You have to go 11 months. The temple is completed, not used for almost a year, maybe longer. Isn't that interesting? So again, it's just like, where's the king in leading the nation to worship? He's nowhere, okay? In fact, Josiah, when he, Josiah um, hired workers from Israel, he paid them. And the, the, the author, Chronicles, goes way overboard. You know, he paid these people. He paid the stone cutters. He paid, and Solomon doesn't do that. Nine, why is the king of Israel giving away part of the promised land? Did you know Solomon just gave away part of the promised land? How would you think if, if the president said, oh, hey, here's a new thing, North Dakota. Yeah, we don't need it. Canada, just take it. Okay, all the fracking would be solved, right? <laughs> it's not our problem anymore. Anyway, um, so he gave 20 cities in Galilee to Hiram, king of Tyre. Well, that's, does he even know about the Abrahamic covenant? Does he understand God's broader purpose? Why the very land that Israel fought, 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 that's part of God's promise, he's just giving it away? What is that? All right. By the way, Hiram is like, what is this? He doesn't like it. Okay, so Solomon has been blessed with a lot, but it, I'm starting to get the sense that he doesn't know why he's been blessed. He seems to be kind of clueless. And if you don't worship God, and you don't read God's word, you don't know God's ways or God's work, you're not going to have the wisdom of God. This is what happened to Solomon. His daily choices were different, all right? He fit in with the culture. So he's praised for international business, but he gives away his own land. Um, why can she see what he can't? We won't go into husband and wife kind of thing here because there's a parallel there. But anyway, um, the queen of Sheba, all right? Check, this, check these verses out. Now, the queen of Sheba says to Solomon, blessed, 
Be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord has loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. A pagan queen can figure that out. As I'm reading these 11 chapters, I, I have a question. Does Solomon know that? I don't think Solomon knows that. I think this is another, another jab, you know. Uh, a, a pagan queen can see why God has blessed him. Solomon doesn't know. Okay, look at David on the other hand. David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel for the sake of his people. David understood why God blessed him. It was for other people. Solomon just kind of um, indulged. It's almost like the first couple chapters of Ecclesiastes. You know, I had this for myself, I had this for myself, and it goes nowhere, all right? So, chapter 10, Solomon is praised by a pagan queen who can see what he can't see. And then chapter 11, Solomon, here's the question. Why are you married to so many women? You, can you even name them all? It's just a weird deal, right? So, if I asked you, it's, it's like when you go out for lunch with the new people, married people, a common question is, well, hey, how did you guys meet? An uncommon question is... Why did you get married? I mean, that's just an odd. You're just like, why did you guys get married? You're like, what, is something wrong? Do you know something I don't? But, but, if, but hopefully, in, in our rambling explanation of why we got married, love would show up eventually, right? If your answer is like, well, there's these connections, or, you know, she has money, or you're like, oh, we're like, okay, this is awkward. I, I, I know a counselor. Here's the phone number, okay? Anyway, so Solomon's answer to why did you get married was political connections, okay? Here's what I'm talking about, okay? First Kings, this is the very first uh, verse of 11. King Solomon, however, loved many, not one, many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh, we already have Pharaoh's daughter. I'm already freaking out over Pharaoh's daughter, but there's more. We have Moabites, Ammonites, Edom, plural. All of these are plural. Multiple women from Moab. Because, and that's why he built the altar to Shamash in Jerusalem for all these Moabite women. Here's how it goes, okay? So, Pharaoh's daughter is from this area. Now, watch the shield that's go, that he's building. Moab. This is Moab, okay? Ammonites. This is where Ammon is. Edomites down here. Sidon and Hittite up there. He is building a shield, and this is the way. This is the way. This is the way it was done back in that day. You would marry women, daughters of the kings of these nations, so that they're not going to come in and kill everybody because their daughter is in Jerusalem. So it was a way to guarantee peace. The only problem is this isn't how God thinks. His ways are higher. So if you're a consultant to Solomon, you would have to say, yeah, that's the way it's done in our culture, but God has a different way. He wants you to trust him, not trust the conventional wisdom of the day. But if I trust God, I don't have this assurance. True. You will feel at risk. That's what faith is. It's amazing. It's just amazing. So Solomon, he fits in. He is not a misfit. All right. And the, the sad thing about this is in his heart, he is doing this to secure Israel from harm. But by doing this, he brings harm into Israel. And isn't that frightening? Have you ever been so freaked out of your ever-loving mind that you think it's possible for me to take a course of action thinking this is the best, and in fact, it's the worst, and you don't know it? That'll cause you to lose some sleep at night. We need to read God's word. Say, Lord, what do you have for me? I'm thinking of this. I think it's a good idea. Would you, would you knock me off my feet if it's horrible, okay? 
Fair prayer, all right? So Solomon doesn't worship God. He doesn't know God's word. He doesn't know God's ways. And um, so he doesn't have God's wisdom. He had wisdom, but he didn't act on the wisdom. All right? So what about us? Does our worship lead to a knowledge of God, lead to understanding God's work and his ways and practicing, doing, right? So this fall, we're, we're starting some practical stuff. Um, we want to practice what we preach. And we have room to do that because we're all in a culture that is just not doing that. And so we want to, the spiritual disciplines, and, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll just move ahead in that area. Wherever we're at, we'll just move forward. And that's, that's a good thing. I'm excited about that. More on that later. Um, so the problem is Christians fit in with the world in ways we shouldn't, moral ways in ways we shouldn't. So I'm inviting you to be a misfit, all right? I'm inviting you to, to be a blessed misfit. It's okay to be odd if your odd comes from following God. It, you can be just weird. They're, they're, those people are out there, um, even Christian weird. But let's just, let's just walk with Jesus and, and as he impresses on our hearts our own lists, like John, you should, you shouldn't. I'm like, okay. And if I do those things, I might be out of step with the culture. I might be a misfit. And you might be a misfit. And that's okay. You might have that risk. That map is a good picture. It's like, if you trust God, you don't have that protection. That's okay. And that will draw you closer to God. And you will desperately be depending on him. Because if he fails to show up, you're toast. That is good. All right? So, maybe you're stuck in perpetual adolescence. I don't know. Um, is it all about you? It's not all about you. It's not all about me. But our culture says it is. And so we have to have a filter and process that out. So, are you stuck in the me first version of Christianity? Perpetual Christian adolescence. It's, you know, God has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. And without worshiping him and reading his word and, and walking with him, it, it, it's going to be easy to make the mistakes of Solomon. Do you fit in the world's ways that are not healthy? I just think we all could say yes. There's probably something out there, right? And the fact that maybe we're like, well, I don't know, that concerns me, okay? So you can get your head wrapped around pretty, pretty tight around the axle here, but let's just pray and say, Lord, would you show me something in my life that, that, that you would like to redeem my behavior, and he will be kind. It's okay to be odd so long as your odd comes from walking with God. That's what we're, that's what we're saying. So, yeah, you can have wisdom, but the key to having wisdom is doing wisdom and not marrying 700, 1,000, whatever, right? Um, so that was normal for his culture. There are things normal for our culture that perhaps all of us in this room are doing, and we don't even know because it's our culture. Those are the thoughts I love to think about on very long bike rides, all right? Like, like what is it? Lord, why, why am I crazy? And I don't know. And it's just, it's just fun. But start with God and his word. He will be kind. He'll, his ways are kind. He's not going to bash you. You know what I mean? And he, he's longing to heal, redeem, and, and to show you his goodness. And, and that's exciting. So, Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. We, we celebrate your goodness and grace and how you offer your goodness and we experience it. And, and then things start to click and we're like, oh, you're good. You're gracious. And, and then we naturally, out of a position of security, want to share that with other people. So we just pray that we would understand your goodness, how it drives our motivation towards you um, and not away from you.
So thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity we have to trust you and, and just walk in a way that maybe our culture has not seen and maybe our family will think we're estranged and we want to be loving and kind and, and not abrasive, but at the same time, we want to be firmly uh, okay with being odd just because you love us and we love you. Amen.